Hey, this is Mercedes, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. This week on the West Block, the shot that misfired. I totally recognize that this is difficult for many. Those who've received two doses of AstraZeneca, you've uh, been provided with good protection. Conflicting public health advice has left Canadians confused. Mr. Lawrence, Mr. Duncan. I declare the motion carried. Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan censured by the House of Commons. How possibly can the women in the Canadian Armed Forces have any faith in this minister to do his job after he failed them so badly? I will do my darnest and best always for the sake of the Canadian Armed Forces until we get an environment that's inclusive. And the federal government declared in contempt of parliament amid concerns about espionage. The Chinese military scientist Fei Yuyan of the People's Liberation Army was granted access to work in the government's Winnipeg lab. Why are the Liberals refusing to provide documents about the firing of two scientists from Canada's top infectious disease lab? It's Sunday, June 20th. Happy Father's Day. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. Politicians across this country told Canadians that they should do their part and get the first vaccine offered to them. Many of us rolled our sleeves up and Canadians received lots of the AstraZeneca vaccine, assured it was safe, effective and just as good as an mRNA vaccine. But now there's frustration and confusion after federal guidance on the AstraZeneca shot has changed yet again. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization announced that the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines are preferred over AstraZeneca now for the second shot to provide the most effective immunity against COVID-19. Joining me now to talk about this and to help us sort through all of it is Dr. Peter Uni. He is the scientific director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, doctor. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's our pleasure, and, and we're really looking forward to getting some of your expert insight on this because we're hearing a lot of confusion from folks who have received the AstraZeneca vaccine for a first shot. They're now wondering, should they get it for the second one? Is it as good as an mRNA vaccine? What would your advice be? Look, this is all evolving, and what has really changed is that we are now having um, the Delta variant in our country, especially here, uh, you know, in our province here in Ontario. And what we know is that the mRNA vaccines will protect more effectively against the Delta variant than the AstraZeneca vaccine. So if people have a choice, they will receive better protection if they get a second mRNA vaccine rather than a second AstraZeneca. This is correct, and this holds especially for infections. It's really important to realize that the protection against severe COVID that results in hospitalization or ICU admission is probably as good with uh, two shots of AstraZeneca vaccine than with uh, two shots of Pfizer, for example. So this is all about infection, and we just try to optimize the response in the situation we're in. Why do you think there's been so much changing advice on this? Because we've heard from folks who got the two AstraZenecas and now they're going, oh, well, 
I thought I was doing the right thing. Oh, they absolutely did the right thing. You know, science is emerging. And what we also see is basically evolution in real time. We now have the situation where the Delta variant is about to take over Ontario, for example, and we just need to react to it. And now we react on new evidence emerging from the United Kingdom. And this evidence just that clearly indicates, yes, two shots of Pfizer or then also uh, one shot of AstraZeneca followed by one shot of Pfizer or Moderna are just a better choice to get this pandemic under control and keep it under control. For people who have received two shots of AstraZeneca, do you think that there could potentially be advice to get a third booster shot or to get a third shot that would be mRNA to give them more immunity? Oh, first of all, we need to be aware of that. It's highly likely that we all need booster shots sooner or later. Things will evolve, more evidence will come. We don't know yet how long we all will be protected once we have had two shots of whatever we got. And depending on what's coming next, uh, the advice will then evolve. Right now, the aim is to get two shots of whatever is approved in Canada. And if everybody actually gets that and we make it to 85% coverage in the province here in Ontario, in the country, that's the aim. And then, then this means that we will be protected enough. Is there a difference, because I know a lot of people are asking this, between Pfizer and Moderna? A lot of people now think Pfizer is the gold standard. Is that the case or are those shots actually interchangeable? These are interchangeable. You know, that's really important. This is like a brand of gasoline, basically. Um, uh, these two really are so close, the way they are produced, the concepts, etc. We know it also, you know, when we look at the antibody responses, they're really interchangeable. And that's important to keep in mind. There's no better or worse between these two. The federal government's talking about reopening the borders and that people who are double vaccinated would be able to travel. But a lot of families are wondering what that means for them because they have children under the age of 12. There's no vaccine approved for them yet. What is your advice on that for families where you might have parents who are double vaccinated but children with no vaccines thinking about travel? Yeah, we need to be very careful here. We now really need to make sure that we don't introduce more variants into this country. And uh, we need to think about what is best here. And it's clear if you are not fully vaccinated, you will need to be very careful. And from my perspective, this would mean if we travel with children, the children would need to undergo the regular quarantine and would need to get tested repetitively, not just once. And that's just how it is right now. We don't have vaccines yet that are approved for kids. Do you have a sense of what the timeline is on perhaps having vaccines approved for children? I mean, I think all, all the parents who are at home with kids right now who are not in school are wondering if they could find themselves in the same situation in the fall. Yeah, we don't know yet for sure. I would certainly hope for September, that September would be the month when, uh, when these shots are also approved for younger kids below the age of 12. Are you concerned at all that the changing advice we've seen and the changing recommendations between provinces and between the federal government when it comes to which vaccine to get and when has undermined public faith in, in getting those vaccines or in what public health officials are saying? 
I hope not. You know, what the public needs to understand is that we are working at high speed as scientists to get this right and knowledge evolves. And what we're seeing here is an attempt to really get the optimal solution to everybody at every single moment. And every decision made so far with the vaccines, looking back, you know, during the last few months were optimal decisions. We need to be aware of that, given the knowledge we had. And if we continue like that, we're on the right track and what the public needs to understand is that science never gives you complete certainty i mean that's like in life you know there are no guarantees here we try to get it as good as it gets and right now we're really on the right track so i hope we continue to do that we also have an extraordinary low amount of vaccine hesitancy in this country and again i hope this stays like that people need to be aware of the Delta variant we're talking about is a completely different beast than what we had before. And the only protection you get against this thing is being fully vaccinated eventually. Dr. Uni, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. We appreciate it and please stay well. You too. Thanks for having me. We know there's still much more to be done to protect all of those who choose to serve their country. So it's unacceptable that conservative politicians would choose to slander Minister Sajjan's reputation instead of working with us to keep Canadians in uniform safe. I said it's unacceptable. I didn't say it was surprising. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau defending embattled Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan after he was censured by the House of Commons. Joining us to talk more about military sexual misconduct and the government's response is the MP who put that motion forward to censure Mr. Sajjan, Conservative MP James Bazan, and we are also joined by Liberal MP and Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of National Defence, Anita Vandenbell. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Anita, let's start with you. Your government is defending uh, the minister's performance. Recently, a report came out from a former Supreme Court justice, Justice Morris Fish. He said there was basically no difference between 2015 and 2021 in how bad military sexual misconduct is. Your government's had six years to do this. The minister has not managed to improve the situation. And as recently as, you know, less than 10 days ago, we had two senior generals out playing golf with General Jonathan Vance, who's under military police investigation. It doesn't seem like your minister has been able to make a difference. Why is your government defending his performance? Well, first of all, I think what we saw on Thursday in the House of Commons is the opposition playing politics and making this about politicians and not about survivors. And what we have been focused on from the beginning and long before this crisis is making sure that we do have a real culture shift within the Canadian Armed Forces. And to your question, um, we, we saw last October, it, the minister recognized that the Operation Honor was not getting the intended results and actually put out the Path to dignity and respect, which was specifically about culture change. In November, that was when we put out, he created a, an, um, the, well, the Fish Report came out, he commissioned the Fish Report, uh, and it was the minister who commissioned that, and it was so that we could come up with recommendations on changing the military justice system, because we also know that that needs to be more responsive. 
In December, the minister created the panel, the advisory panel on racism and discrimination within the Canadian Armed Forces, also recognizing the culture change and recognizing all the measures we put into place before that, including the sexual misconduct response centers, including a whole piece of legislation, Bill C-77, a victim's bill of rights, and realizing that just putting the rules in place wasn't enough. So this has been an ongoing process. And before this crisis, a lot of those measures were already in place. And the FISH report that you're talking about is going to be very key. You note that the minister has accepted all 107 recommendations. We've already begun on 36 of them. And you'll note that when Madame Louise Arbour, when we asked her to go and look at the roadmap, the how, Madame Deschamps herself said that this was welcome because what we, what we did before and we realized that this didn't have the intended effect was we left it to the military to decide how to implement Deschamps' report. What we're doing now is we're making sure it is outside of the chain of command. Madame Arbour will be coming up with well, but, recommendations. But, I mean, in fairness, this, this is another, it's another report. There's been a lot of reports. The government has accepted all of those recommendations. We still see generals going out and playing golf together and concerns about the old boys club. If this was a, a liberal, if this was not a liberal government, if this was a conservative government or an NDP government, and this was the performance of their minister, would you find this acceptable, that, that he's doing his best even if nothing seems to be changing? Well, first of all, I think that it is very important to recognize that Minister Sajjan has been fighting the old boys club since he himself was serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. He was the first Sikh who was able to command a regiment. He has been breaking down these barriers to make things more inclusive, and he's been doing that as minister. And regarding the golf game that you mentioned, I think that it's important to mention that, that we found out about this on Saturday. On Monday, the, the vice chief was no longer in his role. Um, there are consequences happening right now. You see people who are getting investigated. You see people who are losing their jobs. And that's what it takes for people to start feeling they can come forward. They're starting to see consequences. We have women and men coming forward about things that happened decades ago. And we're going to see more of it. And it's a very difficult thing for the Canadian Armed Forces. It's a process that I think we have to go through so that we can identify who are these perpetrators, so that we we can actually put in real change makers into those senior well, and, leadership and, and roles to find, in the to find people forces. who actually, you, you know, how, how do you get them to listen? And I think that's a fair question, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Bazan. How, how do you get these senior generals to listen? Because yes, it is the minister's job to do this. But if you're dealing with a culture where people thought that this was an acceptable thing to do, they didn't see the problem, uh, that's pretty tough for any politician to come in and change. How do you fix this? Well, we said right from the beginning when this first became the story, when you broke the story about General Vance Mercedes back in February, that there need to be a freeze in all promotions and salary increases for, for uh, flag officers and general officers. We said that there needs to be a, a service-wide independent investigation, uh, that we need to promote more women and uh, more underrepresented Canadians in up to the command table. And we need to have uh, independent stream to take in complaints and investigate them, especially when it involved uh, senior leaders. But you know, yesterday's motion on censure was a condemnation on General or on on, on Minister Sajjan for his failure to investigate uh, and 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 do something about General Vance three years ago in 2018. Instead of taking the evidence and investigating it, he pushed it away, and then covered it up for three long years. And during that time, sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces was allowed to fester under Minister Sajjan's watch. Now, he's directly responsible for this. And if he won't do the honorable thing and resign, 
then Justin Trudeau has to do the right thing and fire him. And that was uh, the purpose of the motion yesterday. It was to put more pressure on Prime Minister Trudeau to fire his inept defense minister. Why, why now, though? Because it, it seemed like it took months for the Conservative Party to get to this point. You were going after Mr. Trudeau. Now you're going after the minister. What is this? Because uh, some victims look at it and they think it's political grandstanding. What does it achieve? Well, no, the political grandstanding has all come from the Liberals. And if you look at the work that we are trying to do at the defense committee, and we are hoping to get to a point where we were going to come forward with our recommendations and a final report. But the Liberals are still filibustering for the last month, my motion, and including the last two and a half weeks, filibustering their own amendment to my motion. And I haven't allowed any of those things to come to a vote, which would have expedited the process of how we came to a final report and how we debated uh, all the different paragraphs and recommendations. They don't want to see this report uh, in front of uh, Parliament. They don't want Canadians to see it because, again, they're putting more effort into protecting Minister Sajin than in protecting the women and men who serve in uniform and face sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault, uh, and as we've witnessed uh, for, for far too long. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I just want to go to you. Last year, you know, Ms. Vandenbelt, are we going to see a report from the committee before the House rises, which, which was ostensibly the reason why we didn't hear from any more witnesses? Yeah, and, and actually, I would like to correct what Mr. Bazan said. At any moment, the opposition could agree to adjourn the, the very unreasonable poison pill motions the motion that they keep putting it. one after another. And as soon as that debate is adjourned, we can move to the reports. In fact, we were working on the reports in good faith, and they put a procedural motion to get out of the study of the reports, a 106.4, and then they put motion after motion, delay tactic after delay tactic. If they wanted to get to these reports, they could adjourn the debate right today they could have done it and we would have been able to get all of the reports that, out so that is all, that is all the time we have i'm afraid i think i think there's politics on both sides here shocking from you know i know politicians but uh, we will continue to keep asking the questions we appreciate your time and i know that uh, there's a lot of victims out there hoping that all parties will put their interests first so thank you both for coming on the show thank you for having us Questions of national security at Canada's top infectious disease lab. The opposition say the Liberals are trying to cover up an incident where two scientists were fired. They were escorted out of Winnipeg's National Microbiology Laboratory in 2019 over what the Public Health Agency described as relating to possible breaches in security protocols. Last week, all opposition parties joined forces to pass a motion declaring the Public Health Agency of Canada in contempt of Parliament for refusing to provide documents about the firing of the scientists. Joining us to talk about this now is Global News investigative journalist and author of Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons and Chinese Communist Party Agents Infiltrated the West. Sam Cooper joins us now. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I think this story is catching a a lot of people's attention. They're wondering what it's all about. What do we know about the allegations of these two scientists who were dismissed from the lab under mysterious circumstances and have kind of disappeared? Were they spies? We know that Dr. Q has been working on dangerous pathogens in the Winnipeg lab since about 2006. We know she's a highly decorated scientist. Uh, 
Her husband worked with her in the lab as well. And the problem, according to CSIS, is that students of hers from China uh, are very connected to China's military. So we know that CSIS had warned Canada's government, Dr. Q and her students should not be working in this high security lab. There are concerns, CSIS automatically is concerned about People's Liberation Army uh, connections to researchers in Canada. So these were flagged and the government did not respond to that warning. The work continued and uh, as your viewers know, there was uh, dangerous pathogens sent to the Wuhan lab in uh, 2019. Other viral samples were sent to China over the years. Dr. Q maintained a high degree of connectivity to her People's Liberation Army colleagues, that is uh, high-level scientists we know from open source records that are involved in studying uh, bioweapons in China, were involved in co-research with Dr. Q. So when we put all this together uh, with the redacted documents, they talk about uh, viral samples that have been adapted to mice and guinea pigs in Canadian labs being sent to Wuhan. It raises a lot of concerns that there could be espionage-like activity and uh, there could be concerns that uh, scientists in, uh, in China working on dangerous activities such as gain of function may have been working in some way with Canadian scientists. Uh, obviously, uh, that is pretty astounding. It's pretty concerning. I know the conversation in the United States about where COVID-19 came from is evolving. And under the Biden presidency, it's not seen as Trump coming up with this bellicose rhetoric about it possibly being a lab accident. President Biden is saying this. It's, it's a theory that is being seriously looked at now. What is the perception in Washington and in our allies, because I know you talk to a lot of allied intelligence agencies and spies, about what happened in Canada and what happened in Winnipeg in particular? I've had conversations recently where there's a growing level of interest in Washington, especially with the lab leak hypothesis. It is becoming a more plausible theory within uh, the United States intelligence community. Of course, President Biden asked his intelligence agents to study this theory. And uh, I've been having conversations where uh, sources say that, you know, if more evidence is brought out, there could be a commission of inquiry in the United States into a potential lab accident in Wuhan. And so, of course, uh, Washington is starting to be interested in these allegations in the Winnipeg lab. In the worst case, if Canadian scientists were working on uh, gain-of-function research in some ways, co-researching with Chinese scientists, it just raises the level of concern that uh, they could have been involved not in the coronavirus uh, uh, at, at all, but in dangerous research that occurred in China. When you talk to your sources, are they concerned about the release of these documents in Parliament? Because on the one hand, you have parliamentarians saying, we need to see this, we need to know what happened. But we're also hearing from a lot of folks who work in national security, okay, maybe uh, one committee with security clearance needs to see them, but the mass release of these documents could lead to other national security infractions. What are you hearing about that from your sources? There's, a, there's two arguments, and you pointed to one, that this new uh, National Security Committee has really, it's had value in that it is showing the Canadian public or those that want to read their reports that uh, Canadian intelligence does have some big concerns around countries such as Russia and China and their activity in Canada. On the other hand, what the, the critics who would come from the Conservative Party side are saying, 
we need, uh, could this committee being, be used as a blockade to these uh, important documents? Is the government trying to hide something? And furthermore, even if the committee is doing great work around studying interference, is the Trudeau government doing anything about these recommendations to follow countries such as Australia and the United States in taking a, a stronger stand against interference from a potential and, hostile state and Sam, activity? How, how deep is that interference? I know you just wrote a book on it. it. We're not just concerned about this one lab where we don't know exactly what happened, but how deep is the Chinese government's penetration of major Canadian institutions? There's a concern uh, within CSIS and RCMP criminal intelligence that it's not just the Winnipeg lab. There are concerns around the CanSino vaccine collaboration, deep concerns around political influence activities at all levels of uh, Canadian government, from municipal city halls to school boards up to Parliament Hill. So I, I, I can confidently say in, in the Five Eyes intelligence community, there's a growing eye upon Canada and the concern about whether Canada is strong enough against interference. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it, and I'm sure we'll be back to talk more about this soon. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with all the latest from Parliament Health.